Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today, we're going to talk about, uh, I don't know, it's not the most comfortable subject, but we were sort of thinking about, like, genocide denial. I don't know, it just seems a little bit too common, especially with, uh, like, online, with, like, politics people. You know, the word genocide is like a highly charged thing, and it's kind of like a legalistic term that people can get bogged down a bit in the definitions of that. So it's not really uh, that that we're interested in talking about. You can call various things genocides, atrocities, whatever you want to say, but it's more the problem that people seem to run into when something of like great magnitude happens that is like a disruptive event in terms of... uh, a political narrative and how people seem to respond in a really defensive way to maintain that narrative instead of trying to come to terms with the the fact that this happened so uh, mm-hmm. yeah this just seems to be something that happens it's more prevalent online than i think it should be with people who don't i wouldn't say they have like ill intent you know so uh, i don't know it just seems something that might be worth discussing and uh, we're not trying to you know, analyze any specific situation and dig into that. I don't think either of us feel qualified to do so. So it's not, this isn't really one of those kind of things, but just like an analysis of like, why do people end up talking about this kind of stuff in the way that they do, you know? So I'm specifically thinking of things like whatever's going on with the Uyghurs in China, the various events that have occurred in Syria, the kind of brutalities that have occurred on all sides there. Uh, Yemen, Yugoslavia in the 90s is something that seems to come up. Um, I don't know. What are some other fun... What are your, some of your favorite genocides, Don? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I think the genocide word tends to get loaded and it's hard to... Because yeah. uh, the main thing is that like it, in, in international law and stuff like that, it compels to action. Y- sure, and, that's uh, true. That's, the, that's sort of the difference where people really want to try to minimize the like ability either want to you know if they want action of some sorts then they'll try to invoke the word and if they don't i don't even know if it applies in terms of like you get like this inflation both ways kind of thing where people start start using the word genocide and then they they think it means like physical elimination of everyone in an area or something like that kind of thing you Mm -hmm. know like just a widespread they you know it's the equivalent of the holocaust as if that which is more like the pinnacle of that kind of outcome like there's all sorts of kind of lesser things but um yeah to me it's more the issue of getting into like a defense lawyer posture you know people trying to work through every single possible claim against someone that you might support and then uh turning that into your sort of political views or something like that so and uh you know it is funny because people make fun of Orwell a lot now, but he does really see that very clearly, that kind of like, you know, that, that intention or psychological sort of feature where people try to look at two contradictory parts of uh, ideology and sort of merge them together in different ways. And uh, it's it's not really like it can get sinister most of the time it's just very lazy thinking and it happens all over the place yeah it's not like it's not even like especially within parts of the left that i'm concerned with it's more that those are people that i already like and trust most of the time you know so i trust them about a lot of other things and then when they start talking about certain things they just go off 
into the deep end kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's just true with a lot of the way that it's structured ideologically, a lot of this kind of stuff, like any sort of hot topic that comes up. I always think of like Cuba or something like that, where, you know, people will say about Cuba, it's amazing how great their economy is and stuff. And they've, it's very egalitarian and all this stuff. And, and then very, very quickly after that, they'll go, you know, the, the sanctions have destroyed the economy and, you know, like the embargo of the United States, like has kept it, you know, poor and stuff. And right. And then, and then when the embargo gets, uh, when they pull the embargo off or they're like saying to do so, then, then that becomes like, Oh, this is the CIA trying to destroy the economy with privatized, you know, market yeah, capital like, or whatever it is. Like, <laughs> which, yeah. which way do you want it? Yeah. I feel like, I feel like with any kind of debate online and stuff, you have to, or not online, I, you know, I always say online, but like you have to, you have to care about a lot more than just the case involved kind of thing. You kind of have to have a lot of like principles and <laughs> I don't know, like just, you have to care about more than just uh, winning that side. I think that like the, the, the example that we kind of maybe knew a lot uh, or kind of equivalent on the different Rizona and stuff was like Grover fur or stuff like that, where, yeah. He tries to look at Stalin and just debunk every single negative thing about him or something like that. He tries to figure out some way of uh, esculpate him or whatever. And uh, the the thing that is the most shocking, shocking really to me online is that now that is a very common kind of thing. Like there's hundreds of people that try to do similar stuff online now. And uh, yeah, um, that's very bizarre to me. Like it's, it's like it was something that was quaint mm-hmm. when it was just a few people doing that. And it was like years after the Cold War ended and stuff. So it's not even like, you know, it's not vital in any way. It's just a, it's more like a silly affectation or something. But right now it's more like a current again. And that's very weird. Yeah. And it weirdly mirrors some of the kind of way that people talk, like just kind of like various dramas of cancel culture or whatever that goes on. Like it's a weird sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of similarities there that are very strange or like parallels perhaps. Like you said, it's it's it gets into this like legalistic kind of a thing where it's like defense lawyers arguing specific like did this a violation occur? Does it fit this definition? And it's it's very abstract and detached mm-hmm. from like the the real import of the situation. And I think that's kind of what drew me to want to talk about this is that. Uh, lost in all these discussions is as any sense of like what's the actual problem like what people are more concerned with winning an argument so that a certain kind of grand narrative can stand rather than whatever horrible thing is happening like that doesn't seem to matter it's uh there's like this disconnect there where the horrible event is an opportunity to win points rather than uh yeah i don't know I, i don't think i'm making my point very clear but no i yeah i get what you mean i think that one thing that uh made this clear to me in the past was uh, sort of the discussions around Ukraine and uh, the famine in under uh, Stalin. You know, when I was reading about it the first time and like learning more about it, um, you know, the the question is for like Ukrainian nationalists, a lot of them, they believe that the famine was deliberate and a genocide famine that was des- determined to wipe out the kind of the nation or something like that kind of thing, right? They were like, well, if he kills off millions of people, then kind of smashes the ability of Ukraine to be independent in different ways and stuff like that, which I don't think really makes much sense, you know, as like a thing, like it just, yeah, I don't think that was what happened, but I think it was more 
a catastrophic collectivization policy, you know, and um, that, you know, maybe there was some sort of deliberate, you know, like, like it's not like it, it wasn't deliberate in the way that like it was like an injury or famine, but it was a, uh, it was a huge policy mistake kind of thing. Right. But, but yeah, there, I think there was with, like deliberate decisions yeah. made that were extremely callous and, uh, yeah. And specifically disproportionately affected Ukrainians. But it, it's interesting that the way that the, the ideology works uh, for sort of some Marxist Leninists and stuff is that uh, they will use that sort of proof that it wasn't what the nationalists say, like it wasn't what the far right says, or like, you know, the more nationalist Ukrainians. Therefore, it's somehow humanized in their logic mm-hmm. that now because it's somehow policy, that's somehow not really political, you know? It's like somehow now, because it was just a catastrophic mistake, it doesn't somehow infringe on the ideology itself. Right. And then that sort of thing where you depoliticize it by making it a technical choice, that that is one of the most political things you can do, obviously, right? Like it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a very, very, uh, it's a strategy. Because if the system can allow something like that to happen, uh, that's an indictment of the system itself. I mean, it is It's just like... You know, you might still want to be a Marxist after that, because, which which a lot of people did. But like, uh, you know, it's this very strange thing where like there's the ideas of what good policy are kind of thing, like what people should be doing at any given time. And then there's sort of this cultural overlay of people being certain trends in society, like being a Bolshevik or being, you know, a liberal or whatever that have like this cultural continuity over time. And a lot of what people do in terms of identity is try to defend the cultural continuity mm-hmm. instead of the policy. Yeah. So it's it's not really, it becomes the more about like the red flag and things like that than it does about the actual, it's, it's stuff like, you know, maybe the invasion of Afghanistan by USSR or something Right, like that. or Hungary. You end up, yeah, you end up worried about this sort of grand historical narrative instead of like you know, what are the facts that you want to negotiate with kind of thing. So, yeah. You know. And I think the, the, the narrative can be so grand that, Oh, what's a few million lives among friends kind of a thing, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's just a minor little thing. Like if we can just find a way to like hand wave this away, it, it, you know, it, it's more trouble than it's worth to actually like scrutinize this as some kind of like problem and and instead just deal with it in this you know these terms that you're discussing where it it doesn't threaten the narrative itself because that's the real you know that that that's what actually matters so you know these wars and these atrocities don't matter as much as you know the maintenance of this of this narrative to and to make sure that ultimately that wins out in the end you know and and to me it's like if you are committed to a narrative, a political ideology or or whatever, there should be like a reason for that beyond this kind of weird circular thing where, you know, our side has to win so that our side can win sort of a thing like that. That doesn't, you know, why should your side win? Like you should be invested in your side for a reason. And it, it, if something happens where people that you identify as, you know, being on your side or something have done something which is atrocious, you have to reckon with that in terms of, well, how, how does this reflect on 
the movement or whatever that I identify with? Like, does this reflect in some way on the ideology that I've adopted or does it not? Or is the, you know, does it mean I have to abandon this or does it mean I have to adjust things or, or not? And I don't think in every case that it does mean that, right? Like it could be that like if, if you're a Marxist and you're looking at like what Stalin did in the Ukraine or in Hungary or whatever, you don't necessarily need to say that, well, this means Marxism is wrong. uh, Communism is, is a, is a fake thing or whatever. And instead capitalism is the way to go. You don't need to necessarily do that, but it seems like that's what people feel like is at stake, you know? Yeah. I I don't know. It, it, to me, it doesn't seem like uh, necessary to, to have everything conjoined in, in a way where it's like all or nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, yeah. again, that's what happens when you zoom out too far and you just have this like almost cosmological kind of narrative, you know? Yeah, and I think that it gets especially toxic when you start to combine sort of the narrative with particular people in different ways. Like right. you kind of defend one state or one leader or something like that. It just ends up becoming a very bizarre strategy that is like, okay, well, you're trying to exonerate that particular person from any sort of negative thing or... And the related issue of using the far right position or like, you know, a sort of quasi-fascist liberal or something in that position uh, as the baseline that you're arguing against. And then any sort of left-wing critique of the same things, uh, the strategy is that, uh, well, you're just serving that other line or something like that, right? Crypto-fascist and all that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's no... There's no actual debate about the good and bad. It's like, okay, well, we can have that debate another day. Right now, all we have to do is worry about, like, not serving the interests of some greater evil or something like that. Yeah. And that's, I don't know. That that ends up being a weird way. But it's it's almost like a strategy, again, of, like, just trying to avoid truth in different ways. Like, just trying to trying to avoid digging into it so that you don't have to uh, complicate your worldview or something like that. And uh, which is, which is the thing that, you know, we mentioned this before, but like, it's almost like this weird, like uh, phase that you go through in development or something like that, like where this is not something I think that you have to get stuck in, like for your whole life or whatever. Right. Like, it's like, it's just a, uh, it's, it's like a certain phase of argument, like argumentation or something where you can get sort of frozen doing this particular rhetorical move out of certain like ideas of loyalty and sort of simplistic arguments or something like that. But I don't know. I feel like, I feel like, cause I, it's something that I've go, like worked through myself. Yeah. And it took a long time. Me too. But yeah. like, I think you can get out of it. I don't know. So, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, people are move through this stuff really fast nowadays. I think it's really easy to find like ideological material to read online and people to talk to who will just serve up the talking points and the you know just like the just the basic material you need to kind of like okay this is what i should believe now you know the dogma i guess yeah and when when you've when you're kind of fresh into something you sort of are and i don't even think this is a problem but this is just kind of how this stuff works whenever you're sort of newly subscribing to certain ideas and beliefs there's a, a certain process of uh, someone once described as like brainwashing yourself. Like you're accepting that, okay, I was wrong about things before. 
this makes sense on a like a fundamental level. I'm willing to accept that this is the actual truth about things. You haven't figured out the nuances in everything yet, but you're you're sort of like in a you know Foucault talked about like the docility of of learning and stuff where you're like allowing yourself to to be imprinted upon, you know? So mm-hmm. you're willing to accept that I was wrong about things and then stuff that doesn't sit right, doesn't sound right. It sounds kind of like abrasive to just like a basic kind of moral concern. You're willing to be like, well, you know, maybe this is just kind of part of this new thing or whatever, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's where you find a lot of people, you know, because it's it's all happening so fast, they kind of land in this position and there's enough other people now that it kind of builds up this weird critical mass where there's like huge numbers of people who are all in this like they're just willing to kind of brainwash each other, you know, like they just repeat all the yeah. same things and it just becomes like a, you know, an echo chamber, I guess. So mm-hmm. it seems different than what it used to be. Like when we were sort of going through this phase and exploring these different ideas and stuff, I think it was much more like of a niche, like weirdo nerd kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot more time. You had to like really dig to find stuff that was like interesting. Like you mentioned Grover fur, you know, Nowadays, it's fairly easy to, to find those ideas and to kind of be exposed to them and figure out like, okay, what am I, if, if this is what I want to get into, like, what am I supposed to believe about certain things and stuff? When we were doing this, like what, 10 years ago or something, you had to go like download a PDF from some FTP or something. You, you had to like read a book, you know, it, it wasn't just yeah. like, well, just follow this guy on Twitter and, and, you know, he'll just kind of be saying this stuff all day. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it gave you a little bit more, I don't know, you could throttle the, that whole process a little bit more. And you, you also weren't surrounded by people who were reinforcing it and affirming it, like everything, sure. because it, it becomes, there reaches a point where it's not really the uh, like incisiveness of a, an idea or the way that it aptly critiques something doesn't become the reason that you get attached to it. Instead, it's just like, how much does this idea like almost in an aesthetic way reflect the principles or the, the, the belief system, you know, it's just like how, how Stalinist is this or how, you know, like radical or is this or whatever. And that becomes the, the, the principle or like the value that you, the things adopt, you know, it's not, it's not so much about like, Oh, this is a, a unique and like interesting way to look at this. I haven't thought about it this way. And then, you know, ultimately at the end of that, you can say like, well, this, there's some merit to this. I can kind of see where the site is coming from and, and then go from there. Like maybe you take their side, maybe you don't, but you have enough time to process it. And nowadays it's just like, there's like this weird race to be the most X that you can be, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. That made me think of, uh, around like 2007, 2008 or something like that. When, uh, I would go to the Maoist internationalist movements archive online or something like that and just download, a bunch of old issues of their uh, yeah. notes or something like that from like the 80s or something. Right. And uh, print them off. And uh, I just had this big stack of them. And I would like go to a restaurant or something, you know, like just get breakfast and just be reading through this stack of like Maoist literature or something like that. <laughs> and I think that the the difference is like that's obviously a much slower private process than just tweeting or something like that, you know. But like uh, the difference is that like 
it quickly sort of translates into, okay, and then, you know, you go to certain meetings or something like that, you know, with some people maybe because you see online that there's like a meeting for that or something. That used to be the way that people, you know, you wouldn't, that's how you would learn more about different movements is just by going to the different meetings and stuff, right? And uh, the difference is that like, I think that if you're in person with people, there are things that you've read about and stuff. I think that for a lot of people, at least there's a revulsion that can happen pretty quickly where you're like, wait a minute, this just isn't, you know, these people don't know what they're talking about or something like that, you know, like after. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't happen to everyone, obviously. Obviously, like a lot of group dynamics can uh, sucker people in and stuff. But like, I think that there is something a bit different than uh, having some some people like coordinating like 90% of this online and then the rest of it like with small groups of friends that they're highly dedicated with. That's a lot different than just like, random people you meet kind of thing you know Mm -hmm. like uh in more mainstream kind of politics so yeah yeah um and i think all that all these dynamics sort of lend themselves to like the worst aspect of all this stuff like a kind of cultishness where it's very simplified kind of dogma where it's like these are bad guys these are good guys good guys do no wrong the bad guys are behind everything wrong in the world and everything that happens it's a matter of divining the way that the bad guys are responsible and the good guys need your help you know yeah and i don't know like is that how anything works in the world like (laughs) you know what i mean like usually things are a little bit more complicated than than some like like little superhero story like that but that seems to be the way that people process political events and stuff especially when it's like a foreign thing like it's happening in some other country where you don't really know what it's like there you know you don't really have a real connection to it so it all kind of happens in this imagined version of that country or that place and you can kind of just play out this uh you know it's like your own little marvel movie of the the superheroes and the supervillains and uh yeah i don't know it's like this kind of sick form of entertainment i guess um yeah but yeah i don't know i i want to uh i want to like uh i want to be able to support the idea of like people independently kind of educating themselves about this kind of thing like just learning the way we did about different political ideas and and alternate ways of viewing things uh of like viewing historical events or looking at ways of organizing society and kind of finding all that stuff out on their own but it seems like the well has become really poisoned lately so it's just it seems more treacherous i don't i don't know if it's necessarily still uh like i don't want to say like don't do it because you're just going to become like an you know some kind of cultish weirdo or something but it, it seems like you have to be much more aware of what you're doing and who you're talking to because people are very willing to kind of just pull you into something it's too easy now you know yeah and i don't think that you know again i am very interested in people it's you know i'm i'm focused on people that i otherwise already agree with on a lot of things and feel like maybe in an ideal world you know their heart would be in a better place or something like that kind of thing it's not you know for me uh that's the kind of thing that i focus on but it's true with all sorts of different ideologies i mean it's like yeah, uh, you know, you got yeah. like QAnon and stuff, and so Ru- many people. Russia Gate and all Russia Gate, yeah. yeah, just lots of people that it's it's interesting. It's this. I think it's like a strategy. It's not a strategy, but it's like a thing that happens. I do think it is something to do with the internet, with like 
rapid filtering of information or something where you're sorting all of these different opinions really, really quickly. Um, and I think, I think there's like a good example of this is there'll be like a headline that is pops up Mm -hmm. and the important thing for people is how they respond to the headline. Right. And it's like the issue is in the headline will be something like if it says something obvious, it'll be like, we didn't need a study to know this or something like that, you know, kind of thing. Or like if it says something that implies something slightly off or something like that, you know, and then it gets insulted or something like that. And it's just, it's interesting because it's like a perfunctory automatic ideology kind of thing that like you just, you see a headline and you know how hundreds of people are going to respond to it the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very like haunting or something like that, you know, like just seeing hundreds of people see the same headline respond the same way knowing that other people are responding the same way too you know yeah with like with it's, it's no not, yeah. connection to the actual whatever the article is written about that that's not relevant it's just the yeah. headline and it just becomes this network of yeah. headlines and and responses to these headlines and then kind of people sort themselves out according to how they respond to this like it's this weird like puppet show you know yeah and uh, I do think it's something to do with the rapidity of it all that mm-hmm. that encourages that kind of thing. And the sort of flippant nature of Twitter and the flippant nature of Facebook and stuff where you're driven to just, uh, you know, get the instant response and stuff like that. I don't know. It's very, it's very strange. Um, yeah. Like if, if you look at like, you know, when the Pepe alt-right sort of thing was popping off and becoming popular, I guess like 2016 or whatever. That, I think, is like a really obvious way to see this. You know, it's an obvious example of this because it was highly motivated by, like, racism and whatnot. So people would have all this stuff to say about, like, immigrants in Europe and, you know, especially, like, Sweden. I remember that was, like, a big thing. Like, oh, Sweden's turning into, like, this, like, just pure, like, rape zone kind of a thing. Like, you can't go outside, you know. And, uh that was like this congealing thing so you could you could obviously tell that everyone was essentially responding in bad faith to stuff it was very easy to know how people would respond to a headline because it's just like well what would a racist think about this like does it say something positive about a non-white group of people well then they're going to say oh well this is like zog propaganda or whatever does it say something that implies something negative about a non-white group of people. Oh, well, then they're going to say, like, see, look, proof, this is evidence that we're right, you know? But now that's, mm-hmm. like, all political ideologies seem to kind of work that way. Like, people have sorted themselves out into, like, how they're supposed to respond, and then there's this, like, tension on the border areas where people are like, oh, well, this person didn't respond to the headline the way the rest of us are, so they're actually in that other camp, and... Mm-hmm it's it's really dumb i don't know like it's just really stupid like (laughs) it it doesn't accomplish anything it's all like if we look at the 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 fact that the alt-right folks were probably motivated by like these emotional kind of things like right like people are racist for because they are hateful for whatever reason they're scared you know the whole economic anxiety i don't know i don't know why people are racist but it doesn't seem like it's a rational thing you know Mm -hmm. i think that's probably true with all of this stuff like russiagate people they are that definitely seems like an anxiety about like things are getting weird i don't understand what's happening i wish things would just go back to normal and people the smart people would go back in charge you know that kind of a thing Mm -hmm. with everything else i don't know i haven't like 
suss that apart. It just seems like those two are the obvious ones. It's very easy to tell what's going on. I assume it's essentially the same thing happening on other, with all the other little groups and stuff and networks of people, but it just doesn't seem like a healthy thing or like for the people involved and for people who have to deal with the fact that this is what political discourse is like online. Like, I don't know how important that actually is, but it, it's probably a negative thing regardless. Like, it just seems like, okay, so if this is how people interact online, this is what their idea of like discourse is, then any sort of serious discourse, you end up having to spend a lot of time like rehabilitating people and like, well, this is actually a really stupid way to respond and think about things. Instead, you should be more critical and blah, 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 blah. Instead of people just having that sense of, okay, well, I want to learn about something. So I will be attentive and studious and serious about this. And when something kind of disrupts my idea about it, that's an interesting thing. That's an opportunity to learn instead of like taking this defensive approach of like, oh no, this is some kind of lie planted by the bad guys. And I need to regroup with all the good guys and make sure we all respond appropriately. You know, that's, that's not a good, I don't know. It's not a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I find that with uh, religious stuff too. It's, yeah, it's for a, sure. you know, we've been talking about like maybe more left, right kind of stuff, but there, you know, that's, it's very common for people to try to do like a party line thing for oh, yeah. uh, religion. And it's not just, it's not just a matter of like uh, crimes and all that kind of stuff. It's also about like, it turns into another like flag and bio kind of thing, you know, and yeah. uh, where people expect you to respond to certain things in a certain way, expect you to like signal that kind of stuff. And uh, I don't know, it, it, that feels ominous to me sometimes, so. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's funny. The flag in the bio is like, that's such a perfect symbol of the mentality. It's like, these are my flags. These are my teams that I root for. But yeah, mm-hmm. you're right with the religious thing. It's that's a hundred percent true. Like I've come across this mentality with, with Muslims. Like if, if they're Sunni, they want to kind of act like Sunnis have always been correct about everything. Like they're this unified group of people from the beginning of of islam you know and that there's always been these different groups who have like they're morally like pernicious and they're trying to like overtly undermine things it's almost like they're these little like devilish groups or whatever and it's not just you know and and the idea that like sunnis have always been like unified and like it's just single monolithic thing everyone has always believed the same set of beliefs you know what I mean? Like, that's just not true, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You go from place to place. It's It differs. Understandings across time change. The way people interpret it in terms of practice also change. And uh, that doesn't mean that we can't claim, like, a consistency of, like, a sort of a lineage there and, like, identify, like, yeah, these this is kind of, like, the the sect or this is like the understanding that I subscribe to. And I kind of like uphold these people as my predecessors or whatever. And, and my, you know, like these are people that I would learn from kind of a thing, but you also, you have to just reckon with like what historical evidence shows you, which is just that, that it's not, you know, people have debated about things and it's not just as clear as like, well, here are the answers. And now your job is to just stick to the answers because everyone's going to try to tell you differently. You know, Mm -hmm. I saw some tweet the other day that was talking about, um, I think it was, uh, some sort of criticism of a kind of Marxist who like 
reads Karl Marx as not as like a, a way of a, of a criticism, not as like a critical text, but as like this kind of scripture where you read current events and like all the things that happen in the world into the, like you divine the meaning of the world in the text of Marx, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bad way to do anything, even like with a religious scripture, to be honest. Like, I don't think that's a good way to, to make sense of the world as it's happening around you. Sure. Uh, it can be a guide in a, like a moral sense and it can be like reminders of ultimate principles and things like that. I think that's what the intention is there. But, uh, you know, you, you very quickly end up in weird places where it's like, oh, well, Russia is Gog and China is Magog and, you know, the yeah. Iron Wall and blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you kind of get into weird sort of territory where you the world's going to end in 20 years and it's happening on June 21 or, what you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Someone asked us to do an episode on apocalypse and maybe one day we should do that. Um, yeah. Stuff like that, like thinking about end times and how that affects religious views and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, with a, a lot of the, any sort of ideology that's complex enough, there's always like a, any given situation can always be filtered to allow, you know, one decision or the other to be just equally valid kind of thing, right? Like um, it's more like a judgment of the individual in the situation that actually has to make it. Like we were talking about this the other day with like Lenin and stuff where, a lot of Marxists can, uh, you know, they can look at a particular situation and there's there's like a complete set of ideas and texts and everything that can inform either opinion on something, right? Like, um, like say, just as a random example, like Scottish independence or something like that, like independence of a small nation. You know, there's communist parties in Britain that are pro-independence. There's communist parties that are against it. And like lots of different left people on either side and all that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, you can look it up. You can go, okay, well, Lenin thought that like small nations should be independent because it's a progressive attack against conglomerations of capital and uh, it's it preserves a culture against capitalist invasion or whatever into just dominating all aspects of your life and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, you can find the same kind of texts that are like, oh, well, Marx thought that like, creation of a world market was a progressive thing and that you know you don't want to side with your national bourgeoisie and all this stuff and that that's not necessarily progressive because at the end of the day they'll always side with world capital and you don't want to be stagist because you know like you can kind of go through the argument and there's there's prefab solutions for any given right our outcome right and it's much more a judgment about like what you think is the best outcome and then the way that these arguments end up working is people say the prefab argument but it's like almost like the emotional affect is the important part Mm -hmm. it's like no no no. i just happen to think that this prefab argument fits in the situation because that's just my investment in this and then if someone makes the counter argument which is already basically from the same catalog they're like well no i'm not you know, you're just being dumb because you're taking the other side and we've all we've all agreed to be on this side already. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a weird kind of mean girls thing of, you know, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I, I think what happens is people think that something is true because Lenin said it or, you know, 
you know, put in whoever, right? Depending on your ideology, if we're talking politics or religion or whatever, even something like with Islam, like if, if the prophet says something, that's not necessarily like an argument that that's the right interpretation of what is being said. You know, you can do the same thing with like any kind of Hadith or whatever you can, mm-hmm. you can interpret it a multitude of different ways. Just pointing to like something that, uh, well, you know, this there's this hadith and this scholar said so, so therefore if you disagree, you're disagreeing with the prophet and that makes you a kafir, you know, like that. Yeah. That's not you know, that's not serious argument, you know what I mean? Like that so like it 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 needs to be correct in your situation. You have to look at like what are you debating about specifically and why would that thing apply in the way that you're saying that it applies. You know, you have to make that case. You can't just say, well, like here's something that matches you know, like, uh, sure. like lining up keywords or something and just being like, look, there you go. So-and-so said this yeah. word and I'm saying this word. So therefore I'm right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've talked about this with, uh, uh, Ishmael before, you know, there, there is this pattern of thinking that ends up taking over when something becomes commonsensical in a certain society where, uh, it starts to pervade everything that happens kind of thing. Like you just end up you end up using the same kind of logic a lot for even just everyday stuff. And it's very, it becomes very strange. Like he would tell me about how, like, if you were reading like texts about biology in the Soviet Union or something, they would have sections about angles and stuff before they jump into the more contemporary science kind of thing. And uh, that sort of perfunctoriness, that kind of automatic sort of nods to each other that this is what's going on now and you kind of have to, you know, deal with that or something. The The interesting thing about it that it's important is that it's very, very easy to mimic. And that becomes like a second mm-hmm. problem that people have where just because, you know, I, like we're, we're generally talking about people that maybe are off the rails a bit, but we think maybe in general are salvageable or something, you know, like could could be... Corrected, but there's also that kind of pattern where a lot of people just uh, quickly mimic the language and the arguments uh, for sinister reasons. Like it's not like uh, right. or for like very mundane, greedy reasons, kind of thing. You know, like uh, they use it to quickly start to have power within organizations to be able to bully other people. And uh, and I mean, I think that's a lot of what's online. I mean. A lot of people, even people that I respect a lot, are just being bullies, you know? Like, they're just being bullies to other people in terms of ridiculing their arguments and ridiculing them as people. And, you know, I think that as, you know, from the troll perspective or something, that's always been something where it's like, well, once you kind of get involved in that kind of thing, like, once you're, like, say, a politician or something, you know, like, you're, you've kind of, you've crossed over into being, like, one of the bad people or something somehow it's like free like fair game to attack you or something kind of thing but i mean is that like a mature response too is that something that we have to kind of grow out of is that something that like you know for me at least like is that do i want to keep making fun of people for having errors in their arguments and stuff like that forever or do i want to kind of move on from that so yeah 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 for me the the thing with trolling should be like this pure thing and people kind of instrumentalize it in this way. And it, it, I've never seen it done where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm trolling for good. Like people may believe that themselves or whatever, thinking like mm-hmm. they're, oh, they're owning some kind of like shit lib or whatever. 
you know, I, I've done that kind of stuff in the past, but it, to me, it was always kind of like, this is an opportunity for a good joke here. You know, it, it's not yeah. so much about like, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, giving meat to my base of, of like followers who are going to kind of like lead this charge to change the world or something, which I, sure. I don't know. I, I can't like see into people's hearts or whatever and see what's going on there. But it, there seems to be some element of that going around, you know, um, yeah. maybe not even on the people leading it so much as the, the people who are following, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hard to say, but so I, I don't know, but um, that just seems weird. Like to me, the, joking around is is just fun you know it's it's fun and games and that's uh when when fun and games becomes like a a sort of a veneer for these like ulterior motives and stuff that's i don't know that that seems kind of ugly because then it's sort of uh like anyone having fun it's actually i, I guess it's sort of like how people want they like actually actively want propaganda in their entertainment now they want like sure like really silly cartoon movies or superhero movies to like reflect these different sort of political and social messages and stuff. And, uh, I, I don't think that's great. You know, I know, I know that mm-hmm. there's always some element of like cultural production reflects the ideology that it's made in a blah, 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 blah. But like to just actively want this hollow empty kind of like, I, I, I want to watch this cartoon and have my beliefs reflected back to me, and I want everyone else to have to hear that message because, I don't know, it seems narcissistic. I guess ultimately, like, all this stuff seems sort of narcissistic, whether it's in that way or whether it's all the history of the world is, is all, like, kind of added up and accumulated to kind of prove me right about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think, like, we were talking about the apocalypse sort of stuff briefly. I think that's a narcissistic kind of belief. You know, it's always mm-hmm. like in your lifetime that the world's going to end. And I don't know. I think a lot of this stuff kind of shares the same kind of logic of, you know, I've I've gone through the, the text and everything. Uh, you know, I've understood everything correctly. And everyone is kind of like through history speaking to me and telling me these truths. And it's all adding up to what's happening in my lifetime. And this is all kind of coming to a head now kind of a thing. And it's, I don't know, it's pretty bizarre. Yeah, like a lot of the time, I guess it's it's inevitable, but people very quickly try to spin any sort of conflict into what is the United States' position on it kind of thing, right. um, instead of actually thinking through what the conflict itself is or like beyond that. And uh, I think that's functional a lot of the time for people in that situation, obviously. Like, I think a lot of times nationalist movements and or different things or uh, leaders like they try to cultivate certain types of conflicts so that they can create that sort of thing where it's like polarization. And then one side is basically like survival for the nation by any means necessary. And the other is just this idea of chaos or something like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that happens. It's not necessarily just the United States too. I mean, you see that in places like Ukraine or whatever, where Russia becomes sometimes the the boogeyman kind of thing where it all problems are caused by russia or something like that like where i don't know I, it's just a it's a natural kind of thing where people the, like uh the brunings talk about this a bit sometimes on their podcast but like the polarization forcing debates into new territory kind of thing where people will associate the other side with something that they don't like or something like that and right. then start to 
internalize all these other strange ideas that just because they're not part of the mainstream or the alternative or whatever, you know, like they, uh, I don't know. I think you also see that a lot. It, like the most obvious to me is always like the far right kind of stuff where, uh, or, or some of the far left around like the family and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. where like, you know, the far right will be like trad wife and all that kind of stuff where it's very obviously like not, it's not even really what the person themselves wants. It's more just kind of like this idealized version of the family that they're pining for or something like that. And like this, yeah. or like the pictures of like a rustic lifestyle or something, but it's just, it's just like a certain type of focused lens on a, a rundown house or something like that kind of thing, like a place they wouldn't want to live really anyways. It's just like a, yeah, it's an ideal thing. And then you get the other side too, I think where people start to try to think of like, okay, we've thought about the family now. How do we dismantle this completely or something like that? It just, it ends up being like, a, it's like playing around with institutions in your mind kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. not really, has nothing to do with like the referent or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, the weirdest example I've seen of that recently is like, you know, Biden had these airstrikes in Syria and people have been posting like these missiles that have like Black Lives Matter and like a trans rights flag or whatever on it. And uh, I don't know if that's a real picture or not, but people are just trying to like make the connection that like those like the fact that Biden is in some way supporting those types of issues that that has some relation to like military action in the middle east like you know like you can't have one without the other so if like if you reject like black lives matter then you're also rejecting war in the middle east or something like that it's just like this bizarre thing where it's like not everything in the world is like glued together like that you know it's it's very strange when people set up an argument between themselves and they kind of have this straw man or maybe it's not even a straw man it just is the other side and it's like their rival right so it's like the far left and the far right you know you have these debates like about some issue some some atrocity happening in some foreign country and you're like debating the political you know what's the correct position on this is this a good or bad thing who's the good guys who's the bad guys and stuff and what often gets lost in the shuffle is like the people actually involved in that event you know, so mm-hmm. it makes that whole thing about you and your nemesis. And it's it no longer is a, like the people who are actually affected don't have a say. They don't have a voice in that. They don't even really matter. What matters is, did you beat your nemesis or did your nemesis beat you? You know, and that just seems, I don't know, that just seems kind of gross to me. So, I, yeah, I mean, my, my uh, I guess my like little ending statement here or whatever would be like, interact with different people and stuff and try, you know, learn stuff, try and figure stuff out. But I think you, you really have to keep, if, if you are attracted to some sort of political ideology, you really want to always keep in mind, like, what is it about this ideology that attracts me in the first place? And, and keep that at the forefront as you're sort of navigating these waters, you know, mm-hmm. so that when things come up that seem kind of weird, or you might be not sure if you're on the right side of something or whatever you can kind of return to those like fundamental values and principles of like well i'm i believe in you know socialism or whatever because i i believe in like the like the egalitarian sort of thing there or whatever and uh you know does does this debate line up with that does either side reflect that or you know whatever it is i think that's probably the best way to sort of 
stay on the right path there. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And I think for me, like I, I try to think, okay, well, these are things that I see in other people that I'm worried about. Therefore, how should I, you know, turn that on myself a bit? Like, how do I, how do I, how do I try to model better behavior for myself where I'm not doing the kind of things that I get mad at other people for? And then also not just that, but how do I kind of break out of those cycles kind of thing? Like, how do I not participate in that back and forth even, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like, I think it's good to assess and kind of think about, but at the end of the day, you don't want to, you know, like a lot of the jokes I make are just diagonal to these kind of debates kind of thing. Like they'll be like, I, I I don't really directly interact, you know, pro or against on something, but I just uh, make fun of the debate in a way. But, you know, at the end of the day, like what, what's the step after that? Like what's the, what's, what's next kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so that's what I'll kind of keep track of, I think. So, yeah. All right. Um, should we move on to the questions now? Sure. Um, okay. Either of you guys ever read Mishima or watch the Paul Schrader film. How do you think his attempted coup stacks up against January 6th? I think that's a oh, pretty that's, good yeah. analog, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I think, yeah, I guess, I don't know. His was a bit cooler, I think, in, in theory. I don't know. Yeah. Um, the thing I is, Japan always has, like, anything that we see happen in Japan always has, like, the Japan filter over it, where it's, like, sure. kind of, they just do things. They take everything to the extreme, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not to say that that's bad. It's, that can be cool. Like, if you're doing this weird coup for the emperor or something, like, yeah, then you end up cutting yourself open with a sword. That's pretty That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And we both read uh, Sun and Steel, I guess, or whatever it's called. Yeah, that's the only Mishima I've read. Mm-hmm. I have some of his other books, but I've never, I've not read them yet, but yeah. I, I, um, I kind of started reading one of his books um some i forget what it's called something about a c something like that and yeah. uh i i do not like his style his prose style it it I, to me it was fairly poorly written at least in english translation and i was i was not interested at all but his uh sun and steel i really like or at least i liked when i read it way back i don't know maybe mm-hmm. i'd still appreciate it but i thought he his uh he was very good at like uh describing and breaking down his own like interior like his thought process and his own kind of interior life and i thought that was really good reading but the novels from what i read not so much Mm -hmm. um have you seen the movie yeah um i thought it was okay is that a life in four chapters is that that one yeah with the philip class music and stuff yeah i I think that's Mm -hmm. what they're talking about yeah, I thought it was okay. Uh, not really my style of of movie. Like, it wasn't really kind of what I would have liked to see. It was a little bit too, like, theatrical and staged and all that kind of stuff. I understand that's, like, the point, but it just, I, you know, I don't really like it that much. Mm-hmm. The music's cool. Yeah. I really like the music. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but um, I don't know. That also reminded me of, uh, someone reminded me of, there's, like, a movie about the Japanese Red Army. I want to see that sometime. oh yeah i don't know it's apparently supposed to be very good but um yeah i don't know 
Maybe we'll do a Mishima episode one day. Have we not? I feel like we did. I remember we did, did an episode we? where we put on? Mishima music on it. Oh, really? I remember doing that, so I don't know. Okay. Maybe well, maybe it just came up or something. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Donald, why do you hang out with this loser? Who are they talking about? Um, I don't know. That, I, I, I'm like, Jesus, I have to uh, hang out with uh, <laughs> the lepers and uh, prostitutes and... Yeah, that's me, the leprous prostitute. (laughs) Do you guys think Palestine will ever be free? Um, I don't know, probably. I don't know. Yeah? Uh, I don't know. Or or at least part of some sort of federation where it has some autonomy within it or something instead of just being, like, occupied or whatever. Yeah, I think so, probably. I think if the current trajectory plays out, Hollywood will take over the entire world and all of the <laughs> all of the world's governments will be like subordinate to the government of Palestine. The Palestinian Authority yeah. will just control everything. Yeah, the Kingdom of Jerusalem will control everything. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's the New World Order. <laughs> One world government. Alex Jones warned <laughs> yeah. us. But yeah. I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, how much guilt should we feel in our lives, and is it a waste of time to feel guilty about things which we can't do anything about? Especially with regards to material consumption, it can feel as if you cannot buy things which you enjoy without feeling guilty about it. I'm not religious, so I would love to hear Christian and Muslim perspectives on this. I don't know. I I have had that thing where like I get like an impulse where I do feel like embarrassed and ashamed for buying something for myself or something a lot of the time mm-hmm. like uh i i get like uh if i do buy something that's like just frivolous or something i get like a, a pang of like i shouldn't have done that or whatever i get that out of like um out of being really broke like when, yeah. when i was really really hard up for money spending money on anything except the absolute necessities i would feel pretty guilty about it and like talking to my friends about it and stuff like they kind of have the same thing. I have, I have one or I had one friend in Seattle who uh, came from like extreme poverty and he, that was like a constant issue with him. Like he got a pretty decent job and started to make money and just couldn't spend money on himself. He would like feel like a ton of guilt about it. Yeah. I mean, I have had moments where it was like similar like that, but um, it reminded me of like this time when uh, I was living in Montreal and uh, I remember like not having really much money for like uh, buying groceries or anything like that at the time. And what I did was uh, I sold some of my old textbooks at like a university bookstore or whatever. Like they had like a one of those traveling textbook buyer guys, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got like, I don't know, I sold like a pile of them and got like maybe 20 bucks or something like that. Yeah. And uh, bought pizza with it. I was like, I was like, that was like my sort of coup or whatever, you know, like I got that. And I remember like feeling really weird about that. I don't know. Like that was like a very clear moment of that, of being like, uh, I don't know. Or like the feeling of like walking around and everything just being closed kind of, mm-hmm. you know. Anyways, I uh, I do think that, yeah, like uh, that might be part of it, but somehow residual or something like that from when I was much younger or something like that. But like... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I but I don't really it doesn't it's 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 funny. It doesn't really register as like a religious or moral thing to me. It's more like just a purely emotional thing. Yeah, like a psychological thing. Yeah, it's more like 
yeah, like a risk or like feeling ashamed or something like that for like putting my future in jeopardy or something. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, like that somehow it's going to come back to haunt me like karmically or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and not like a religious thing where it's like, well, I could use this money to give for like mosquito netting for malaria or something. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I get the sense this person is sort of thinking about things like, like sustainability, you know, like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I'll be honest, that is like a important thing in like Sharia, the idea of like having scruples about your consumption, about especially meat, obviously is like a big thing, but also like the clothing you wear, uh, your income. That's a whole dimension to zakat, you know, like zakat literally means like a, it comes from the word tazkia, which is purification. And so that is a word that is used in terms of like spiritual perf- purification, but it's also like purifying your wealth. And I, I've heard a very funny analogy or description of it, that it's, it's the same way in that you have to defecate. You consume good, pure food, but you still have some element of that that is like waste. And so that's like years mm-hmm. of cot. You have to like excrete some of the income that you, <laughs> that you yeah, consume yeah. in order to like be pure and healthy, you know? So, mm-hmm. There is an element of that thinking in in Islam, and uh, I think that's really important, but it's so hard to abide by it, by the standards that were set in the early days and everything. It's very difficult to abide by that today if you think about like, okay, so my food has to be all halal, which means like, not just doesn't mean that the meat just has a stamp on it or something. It means like you have to go and, and make sure that the farm that these animals are raised in are taken care of appropriately and that you're paying a fair price for it and all that kind of stuff same thing with like even like vegetables and stuff like there's an element of ethics involved in that like we do everything nowadays in such a an ethically bad way that it's you know any kind of form of consumption it's like well there's probably some sort of evil involved in this which by the standards like you shouldn't be consuming it but like you have to you know it's just like at a certain point you kind of have to just accept what it is so like clothing that's made by like you know exploited labor child labor all that kind of stuff the energy Mm -hmm. that we consume you know electricity that's wasteful and polluting and so that's not a good thing you know all this kind of stuff none of that passes muster by sharia standards so Mm -hmm. the way i kind of look at it is it's important to be aware of of this it's also important to understand like this is these are circumstances that god has permitted and created for us like we live in these circumstances and if we're powerless to affect the kind of changes we would need to to like correct all these different things like we should try to work towards that and do the best we can while we're in this situation to minimize unethical consumption and stuff but at a certain level there's also like exemptions you know like if you can't do something reasonably then it's not really on you it's not a rigid standard you know what i mean like those are the standards you aspire to but if you can't meet them you just try and that's what god judges you on god judges you based on your effort to to meet the standards not by your actual ability to meet those standards necessarily you know that's that's my understanding of it Mm -hmm. now you can kind of look at that and say like oh well that just means like as long as you come up with a good enough excuse 
then you don't have to worry about it. Well, God's probably uh, aware of where your heart is, you know? So it's mm-hmm. all about like being sincere in that. So sure. Um, all right. I heard from Tom that he might want to get into uh, starting a passive income. Let me say that stock trading can be fun, but if he wants something that can be a little bit more fulfilling and probably not haram, try things like owning your own vending machine or gas station vacuum. You'll need to start your own business with a business checking account, get a location before you buy the vacuum or vending machine, talk to a business owner maybe at an apartment complex or gas station, maybe watch a few YouTube videos, and be ready to restock and collect money from the machine. Well, that's a nice idea. I don't know if I'm going to follow through on that. Maybe I'll look into it. It sounds like, I don't know, maybe not. But yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll look into that. That seems like something, a potential thing. I, I just wanted to read this because I thought this was a cool idea that maybe uh, some of the listeners would appreciate and maybe they can try it out too. So yeah, thanks for the suggestion. I will I will say, like if I do get into this and I, I like the idea of it, I'll let you guys know. Mm-hmm. Um, what is Sufism? Is it good? Maybe we should do a whole episode about Sufism because that's something that people are confused about and I think actively misled about. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in Just in a nutshell, I'll just kind of briefly summarize it, I guess. It's usually described as Islamic mysticism, but it's not just, uh, it's not just that. The, a very important part of it is the social dimension of it. They're fraternal and uh, whatever the female version of fraternal is, uh, organizations, uh, mm-hmm. like lodges is how it's usually translated. Tariqas is the Arabic. And uh, for a very long time, you, you basically, if you were a Muslim, you were also a Sufi. Like you were in some way connected to a, a Tariqa. Um, not necessarily, but like 99% of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it was a uh, basically how you learned your religion, how you related to your religion in any kind of organized way, was through some sort of Sufi organization. And so the way that a, a typical lodge would work is there's some guy at some point who is kind of like some sort of mystic, kind of like a genius sort of a guy, who founded a certain way, and people followed him, and he would have a chain of teachers that connected back to the prophet and in almost all cases it's kind of interesting even in the in the uh, sunni tradition it would be through ali to the prophet so it would be like prophet to ali to somebody else to somebody else to somebody else to imam junaid or whoever you know some some guy who would be like the founder of this specific order and then from there you have like a continuation of certain teachings and practices and understandings of like the Quran and theology and all this kind of stuff. And they're all within the umbrella of, uh, Sunnism. Uh, I, I don't know how it works for the Shia exactly because they have the whole Imam thing. So I'm not sure how Sufism relates to that. I, I think there are analogs there, but I, I don't want to like speak out of ignorance, but I, I would say it's very good, basically. Um, I I really like Al-Ghazali. He's one of my kind of like, I, I don't know, like my references, my main kind of references for Islamic knowledge and stuff. So 
he was a big proponent of Sufism as a counterbalance to like the, the legalistic sort of dry tradition. People kind of talk of mm-hmm. Islam as having like a dry and, uh, you know, there's like this balance that spiritual. you want to strike. Yeah, yeah, spiritual kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it, it's it's not the be-all end-all of Islam. Like, and, and the other thing is people kind of think of Sufism as being detached from like the Sharia as if there's like, you know, there's the legal scholars who are only concerned with like outward like conformity to law and and kind of like ritual practice and stuff like that and they're just like spiritually hollow and then there's these like sufi hippies who have abandoned all that and freed themselves and they're just like you know basically like this idea of like hippies like muslim hippies or something like that Mm -hmm. that's that's a pretty bad way of understanding it they're Sufis were probably more like the the more serious a person was about their Sufi practices, the more serious they were about like their uh, adherence to the Sharia. Like essentially to be like a a member of a, a tariqa where you like were living with the with the people in the lodge and you were going on retreats or, or anything like that, you had to at the minimum abide by the Sharia in a near perfect way and then there were usually additional practices and and stuff that were involved with whatever specific organization you were in you know so it's it's almost like uh sharia plus you know it's it's not it's not without sharia it's almost like sharia at a bare minimum plus other stuff Mm -hmm. so uh i like that is my intuition about it is that it tends to be received as hippie side of islam as if it's like some split off that is uh emphasizes you know i mean like not not that i not that i think that i'm just saying that like that's the i think that is the popular understanding of it is that it's yeah. kind of like a it's similar to buddhism or something like that kind mm-hmm. of thing and it's just its own western sort of buddhism and uh um so my question though is that uh um i mean we'll go we'll get into it i think in an episode but like the, my my question now is like uh was there like a reaction against it because of this kind of stuff like like in the more sort of legalistic you know islamist kind of stuff do they sort of embrace some of the mystical sort of elements or is it like uh is that sort of frowned on because it's associated with these kind of other things um so it's a relatively modern phenomena like essentially starting with like the wahhabist movement but yeah there is a, a very strong tension between people who follow abdul wahhab you know typically people call them wahhabis salafis although not all salafis are like followers of wahhab wahhabis but they're they really don't like sufis they kind of see it as not so much that they like cause the deterioration of of muslim civilization but they are emblematic of that like degeneracy you know so Things like uh, grave worshiping that is sort of associated with Sufis and Sufis do participate uh, like it's typically emphasized this idea of like visiting graves. But people who were following Abdul Wahab saw that as worshiping the graves. And so one of their first things that they got into was. I kind of think of it as like drive-by stonings. Like they would show up at graveyards and start pelting people with rocks if they were, 
you know, having some sort of thing around a, a grave, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, people would visit like the graves of previous like Sufi people in their in their in their order, you know, like people who had died and stuff. Uh, and what's crazy about that to me is that, that that is something from the Sunnah that the Prophet specifically advised is like visit the graveyards. It reminds you of death like you should always have. Uh, you know, don't forget your mortality. You know, that was a kind mm-hmm. of one of his big pieces of, pieces of advice. So that's where this practice comes from. But mm-hmm. yeah, the general kind of like anti-Sufi sentiment comes from this idea that Muslims moved away from the true teachings of Islam, and that they started to kind of mix stuff that was outside of Islam into their, you know, just into the civilization, and that's caused the degeneracy. And the way to get back on top is to purify it and to go back to like the basics, you know, so that's mm-hmm. the whole fundamentalist argument. Sure. Which I disagree with. Uh, there, I think that's a really corrupt understanding and for many different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So yeah, maybe we'll do an episode about that. Sure. Uh, next uh, question here says, I might work at the TSA, but I feel like I would just become a disgusting sexual deviant in there. Should I pass this one out and look after something else? I don't know. I feel like maybe, you know, you could, you could become some sort of sexual deviant in this uh, job and then maybe sell a book about it or something, (laughs) you know, you could like do it for a year or two, rack up some experiences and then be like my expose or something like that and they can make a documentary about you or something that's not a bad idea yeah i was sort of thinking like if you're concerned about becoming a deviant at working for the tsa like what i don't know like what job is not free from this fear like oh i'm gonna go be a kindergarten teacher instead you know like that maybe yeah maybe maybe stick to the tsa if that's your alternative you know what i mean like there's a sure seems like that is a problem that will follow you wherever you go so i i don't know take the job and work on the whole deviant thing well at the same time maybe that it'll just make them really good at the job like they just get in those crannies and stuff you know (laughs) just just like they're really good at patting people down because they look at every part of the body and stuff and it kind of is part of the job description yeah yeah, so maybe they'll, like, catch a guy with a bomb in his butt or something and uh, <laughs> become a hero, and then the book will sell better and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I like your optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, Tom and Donald. Tom and Donald here. We're sending a message to you, ourselves, from the future. We can't tell you too much because of paradoxes and junk, but this is really important. You have to not do that thing you were planning. You know what we mean. It's going to turn out really badly for everyone, more than you can guess. Please, shelve it. We're begging you. This is our last hope. Signing off. We're out of time. They're coming. So it cuts off there. I don't know. That's exactly the kind of thing the CIA would tell you to throw you off the, you know. Yeah, to that's true. The plan, so. But the way he said paradoxes and junk, that sounds like you. Mm-hmm. I don't okay. know. Okay, well. I don't know about this one. (laughs) I got to say, though, I'm not sure what they're referring to. Maybe maybe they sent this message too early. Well, I'll tell you the plan later and then we'll go over it. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Um, What exactly did Don think the plot of the idiot was before Tom explained? I suspect the answer is amusing. Oh, I I thought it was like, uh, 
you know, there's that that book. Uh, I, I don't know how you pronounce it, but like Oblomov, whatever. Um, that sounds familiar, but I'm not really sure. Oblomov. Um, it's uh, it's about like some guy that like. Anyways, I don't really know much about it. Anyways, but like, uh, um, it's a it 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 basically like uh, a lazy slob kind of thing. Okay. So I thought it was like a similar kind of thing of like a book about someone that, yeah, just a lazy slob or something like that, kind of like a a dumb guy or something. I didn't know it. It yeah. So it sounds more like uh, being there or something. You know, like the that's a movie, right? Yeah. I yeah. Um, I'm not sure what that's about. Okay. Well, it sounds sounds more like that or something like that where it, it's like a Christ-like figure. Yeah. Kind de- of thing. Definitely. So. Yeah. Yeah. Afflicted with the same medical problems as the author, right? Epileptic seizures. I think Dostoevsky oh, yeah. had that. That's always yeah. a cute thing to do. Mm-hmm. This Christ-like figure is exactly like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I like Dostoevsky, but that, that is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, guys, what are your favorite candy bars? Um, hmm. I like caramel. Oh, I don't. You're going to name a bunch of weird Canadian stuff. Okay, what's... <laughs> oh, is that is that Canadian? I know, I, I've never heard of it. I don't know. Oh, really? What, well, so what is that, caramel coffee? and milk chocolate or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. It's like milk chocolate with uh, caramel in the middle. Well, good branding. I nailed that one. Yeah. And then uh, coffee crisp. Do you have coffee crisp? Nope. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a Canadian one too. Um, stuff like that. I like arrow bars a bit. Okay. That one sounds familiar. That I, I think that I saw that in Europe. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I've seen that here. I think that's a Nestle one. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know. I can't really have that anymore. Like anything like that just makes me sick. So, I get like a headache and just a yeah. Yeah. It really, yeah. I know what you mean. It kind of grosses me out now if I ever yeah. do that. Yeah. I I like saw a big pile of candy the other day, like on like some image online or something, and I was like, oh man, I would have used to love that. Or something, or like I saw, I saw at the story the other day, maple fudge, like the sugar, maple sugar. Oh yeah, fudge. that sounds really good to me. And uh, I used to get that from the, because in Quebec it's obviously like a very popular thing there, and they used to sell it at like the grocery store. They just have like a little tray, and they'd also have like, a, oh what what was it like that cheese that cheese curds, yeah. Oh right, so, yeah, yeah. And so it'd be like cheese curds on like one table, and then like maple sugar on the other and uh, i would get that and it just i don't know it's like anti-food basically it's like (laughs) eating something that is just causing you pain yeah but at the time i used to love it and it wouldn't make me sick then and now when i look at it i just get like a sick feeling i'm just like oh man Mm -hmm. i would probably die if i ate that so (laughs) yeah i really like uh, maple like syrup like i just like the taste of maple yeah so that sounds pretty good to me Mm Hmm. yeah it's one of the benefits of uh, when i lived in quebec yeah, I, I can't think of the last time I bought a candy bar. I, I, I'm never really big into, like, sweets like that. I've, like, like for desserts and stuff like that, I'm more of, like, a, I don't know, like, cookies and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Candy bars and just candy in general is not my thing, especially anything that's, like, really artificially flavored. You yeah. know, like, I that, that actually, like, grosses me out. So, um, I don't know, in general, like... Uh, like chocolate is kind of a thing I like, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's this Finnish chocolate that I used to really like. Uh, the company's called Fatser. 
F-A-Z-E-R. I don't even know if it's Finnish. I think it's a Finnish company. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not even especially good chocolate, but it's just kind of like, you know, good memories associated with it, with it, that kind of nostalgic thing. Yeah. I used to get like uh, mini brownies a lot Mm -hmm. and also like, uh, oh, these uh, white chocolate bars. Oh, I hate white chocolate. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. uh, I would get it on like it was it was a bad impulse purchase I would get on the way home. I used to I used to go to school in Toronto and it would take me like almost 3 hours each direction to get there and back. So on the way home, halfway home basically like when I was at the major train station in downtown Toronto, Union Station, um they had like a right near there they have like a drugstore and they would have like all the different candies and all that kind of stuff. So I would go in there and I would see the white chocolate and I'd be like, I shouldn't get it. Cause I was buying like the big jug of like, uh, or like whatever of uh, Coke zero, you know, mm-hmm. to tide me over till I got home, whatever. And then, uh, I would see that and I would just be like, Oh, and I would just try to convince myself not to get it. Cause it would start to make me sick and stuff. And I'd be like, no, it's time to time to eat this white chocolate on the way home. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, bad, bad at impulse control, but yeah. Well, you've gotten better at it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, white chocolate is so gross to me. It, it just seems like congealed butter, like like sweetened butter, basically. For some reason, my mom can't have chocolate. Like she she gets like she's allergic to something in the cocoa or whatever. Yeah. Um, so white chocolate is what she gets. Yeah. 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 So she gets that, and I have it sometimes. But yeah. Well, I I could see that. Like if you can't have actual chocolate. As one of your consistent listeners, I am holding you accountable for not sending everyone a $2,000 check. I specifically recall you saying you would. Where is my money? Did you tweet something like this, Don? No. I don't know. I feel like on a long enough time scale, we agree to do this. Like uh, maybe like in 50 years or something. Mm-hmm. You can like look up who were the original subscribers and uh, send them out $2,000 checks out of our billions. Yeah, how about this, guys? You subscribe to our Patreon $5 a month, and we will flip your $5 a month into $2,000 checks. I'm going to mm-hmm. buy up all those gas station vending machines and become a vending machine, like build an empire on vending machines. And we'll flip all that money, all those white chocolate bars people are buying, and then we'll, I'll I'll spit you guys out a check. How about that? Sure. Uh, Okay. This is one of our Brazilian fans. Apparently he's a, a, a Tom Brazil fan though. It says, Tom, please move to Brazil and spread Islam here. Muhajir for South America. Uh, What's Brazil got for me? What's going on in in Brazil that I would like besides an awesome president? What what else is going on? You know, <laughs> I know that graphics cards are very expensive there, so that's about all I know about the quality of life in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know they they like steak, which is cool. I like steak too. I know that Saudi sources a lot of halal chicken from Brazilian uh, like factory farms and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a great thing, but it's of note, I suppose. It's probably hot. That's not mm-hmm. something I really like. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. You got to sell me on this. I'm not turning mm-hmm. it down, but you you gotta you gotta uh... provide some sort of stipend or something. Yeah. You know, his his living that he's accustomed to now. Right. Yeah. Now that I'm uh, I'm mining all that cryptocurrency and living on this Patreon millions, I I got a certain lifestyle. So. Sure. Uh. Given the show's thousand-year quarantine stance, how have you two been able to deal with your life seemingly improving during a time where so many have been dealt a bad hand? Personally, I've had some good things happen since lockdown started and have been able to comfortably work from home, but feel a bit, feel a bit guilty for it all. I'm younger with no spuds walking around, but I can't help but feel like I must be on a different planet than my co-workers juggling kids home from school. Uh, well, I, I mean... I understand where this person is coming from, but it's nothing to feel guilty about unless you were the guy that ate that bat, then in case you have some things to <laughs> yeah, answer yeah. for. But, sure, you know, it's yeah way of the road, bud. You know what I mean? Yeah, there is a very kind of strange thing now where it's very uneven, the effect of the economy on people. There's even people that became unemployed, some of them got more money out of the benefits than they were from working and yeah quite a few people you know not having to go to work every day and stuff maybe probably at a a job that wasn't that great a lot of the time stuff like that so yeah i think there's also a lot of people that are working from home and saving huge amounts of money on gas and things Mm -hmm. and uh very very uneven like there's going to be people that are doing really really well out of this kind of thing so Millions of people, I mean, at least in the United States, where their finances are a lot better than they used to be. And then there's millions of people that, like, are just in total shambles. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, these things affect people in different ways. It's it's not, it's not like, on you to, like, you can't sacrifice yourself so someone else would do better. You know what I mean? That's not really how this stuff works. Uh, other things will affect you more in a worse way than it would affect someone else, you know, like... It's just how how the world works, you know? Yep. Um, why don't we wrap it up there? Yeah, sounds good. I think uh, I think we plowed through a good number of questions there. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so thanks for listening, guys. If you'd like a second episode every week, please subscribe to our Patreon, and you'll get that as well as access to our Discord where you can chat with us in our lovely community. If you'd like to send in anonymous questions, you can check out the Twitter at you can't win Pod, and there's a Curious Cat link there where you can do so. Uh, Thanks again, and we'll catch you next week.